in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot on a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million hours. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all of a million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help was like, it's like, I wish, I wish, that every time he's loving it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we loving it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from a lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish, that every time we loving it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we move it, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It's just, it's like, like who the dog I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, coming at you on this Thursday after what I thought was a really gripping, I don't know, energy full, kind of proactive, affirmative episode of Bad Faith Podcast. I really enjoyed talking to Matthew Ho. Of course, he's the North Carolina. Senate candidate uh, on the Green Party line who has faced an incredible amount of opposition from the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party who seems to be able to show fight only when they are fighting against progressives and not against the Republican Party. He spoke to us on today's podcast, along with perhaps our most famous Dem- uh, Green Party candidate of all time, Jill Stein, who, according to my Wikipedia entry, I famously voted for in 2016 without an ounce of regret. I was so glad to have them both to talk about the things that Green Party is doing to try to advance the cause of the left, their feelings, echoed by many of you, I know that it is an impossible task and ultimately a waste of energy to continue to fight within the Democratic Party. I'm sure we'll have a continuation of that debate we've been talking about on here for a very long time. And additionally, you know, they made the following claim. They say at the end of the day, the Green Party has persisted much longer than all other third party left efforts in the United States of America. And for all their flaws, they are far ahead of the game of any new party with respect to ballot access, et cetera. And I I take their point. It is a little confusing to think about why it is that despite that being the case, there is so much ambivalence among the left when it comes to supporting Green Party candidates, at least on the national level. I, for one, was, you know, 
a little taken aback and a little frustrated with myself that I hadn't really heard of Matthew Ho's campaign until I started seeing news about how the Democratic Party was getting involved. Of course, those of you who listen to the podcast know that there is a war basically being waged against him on two fronts. For one, he had a successful ballot initiative to get on the ballot. He got many, many, many more signatures than were required of him. And despite that fact, you know, some portion of signatures obviously always, you know, get thrown out because, you know, they're sloppy signatures. They can't be um, authenticated, et cetera. But even after 200 or so signatures were thrown out, he still had many more than he needed. I think 2000 more than he needed. And yet the Democratic Party played games. They waited to the last minute to certify and then said, oh, well, because there were some inconsistencies in some of these signatures, even though the rest of them were authenticated and there's no reason to think there's any problem with the rest of them, we are going to not certify because we think there could be a problem and oops, we ran out of time and therefore you're not going to be on the ballot. And at the same time, there was an effort that uh, uh, was spearheaded or at least had heavy involvement of a Democratic Party lawyer who's famous for representing the likes of Hillary Clinton, among other Democratic establishment characters who spent their time making cold calls and even house visits of people who had signed the petition to get the Green Party on the ballot. So what they did was they took this list of names, which they were able to get publicly, cross-listed them, we think, against the um, share blue, act blue uh, names and numbers and information that they have from the times that we have donated money to, I don't know, Beto O'Rourke or uh, Warnock or whoever we voted donated money to at some point to try to help the Democrats get it together. And they used that information to then cold call people, misrepresent themselves at times as a member of the Green Party and told people, you know what the line is, you know what they say, told people, oh, would you be open to taking your name off of this ballot initiative, you know, this ballot petition to get uh, Matthew on the ballot because it will ultimately help Republicans if he runs. It will help Republicans if he runs. And saying that they were from the Green Party making this case seems to me to be particularly underhanded, extremely inappropriate. I know that Matthew is following up um, seeking legal recourse, and we're going to see what happens with that. As you heard in the podcast, he is down but not out for the count. Uh, so let's hear what you guys had to think about this. Without any further ado, Jaw, you're up first. What's on your mind? There it is. It wasn't hey, trying to unmute. Hey, how you doing, Bree? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Good, what did you think good. about it all? What did I think about it all? Well, I really take the point about uh, the Green Party probably being the best way forward, um, especially their point about it lasting as long as it has, um, despite all the attrition. But, you know, I, I think about that, Bree, and I'm like, man, like, do we have the stamina to keep doing this, you know, with every candidate the Green Party tries to get in and whatever position they're trying to get into? Like, do we really have it in us to, to really push forward and actually do something. I don't know. Um, I, I'm a little doubtful about that. And I'm not just quite sure what that looks like, but I, I hope so. And what do you think? So what do you mean by do we have the stamina to keep pushing the Green Party forward? When I think about all the things that the establishment has going for it. Oh, Hello. Ja? 
Can you guys hear Jaw? He cut out after all the things the Democratic Party has going for it, and I I can't hear him after that. But is that my fault or is it on Jaw's end? Somebody talk to me in the comment section. Hello. It's Ja. Okay, I'm hearing it's Ja. Ja, if you get back in the queue, I'm not sure what's going on. I will pull you from behind, but let's go ahead and move on to David. David, what's on your mind? Hi, Bree. Can you hear me? I can. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is my first time calling in. Um, oh, welcome, David. <laughs> um, so I, I really liked that uh, that episode. I mean, Green Party is great. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the idea of folks, you know, trying different avenues, like the ideal scenario, you know, you have socialist or, you know, Green Party member running in green, um, you know, also socialist candidate running in blue. And then like, you know, let's say they both beat out a person in the red, um, you know, then it's like, OK, great. Uh, socialism wins because, um, you know, right now it's like, OK, you have. Uh, red, blue in a bunch of districts. And then no matter who wins, you know, capitalism wins. Right. Mm. So <laughs> this might be a harebrained thought, but what about if folks, um, you know, in districts, you know, there's going to always vote blue or always vote red and, you know, super hard to get folks to change the registration for primaries. So, what if it made sense, like folks who live in primarily like red districts that always vote red, running a socialist candidate in a red district at on Republican saying they're Republican, but obviously in name only. And they mm -hmm. use like those, you know, Republican, I mean, not really using the Republican talking points, but like, you know, saying that they're for the working class and, um, you know, that they're about empowering the workers, you know, like that sort of faux populism that Republicans use, but we would use it and actually mean it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm just wondering what you think about that, if um, that's possible, because I think all these avenues are great and, you know, it can't hurt to try them all at the same time, because, you know, if you had a green, red and blue and they're all, you know, socialist candidates, it's like, well, hey, if one of them win, you know, we win. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I mean, so for one, I would say probably in any given race, <clears throat> it shouldn't be all, you know, a socialist on each line or at least the real, you know, the, the real left should know which one they're going to go for. So we don't split the vote amongst all of them. But I do hear your point about potentially running candidates that are frankly left candidates on other party lines. Obviously, you know, we're all looking forward to Liz Cheney 2020, uh, 2024. There is no shortage of conservatives who have taken advantage of the Democratic naivete um, and embracing the never Trump Republican. I think MSNBC has more never Trump Republicans on than they probably do Democrats, much less leftists at this point. Um, and I think there's something to be said for you know, capitalizing on the fact that the Republican Party at this point is mostly just vibes. It's not really about small government anymore. No one really even talks about the deficit that much. Um, they are anti-interventionist, which is a good fit for us. They're, you know, and you can find candidates like Matthew Ho. I mean, I was listening to him and thinking, this guy has a lot of broad appeal. A former Marine, you know, former State Department guy who left over the war to in Afghanistan. 
I mean, you know, you can't beat those kind of um, anti-war credentials. He has a way of presenting himself that resists a lot of the stereotyping that, you know, the crazy, wacky left gets pegged with. And I would like to see potentially someone like him see how they fare in, in a, on a different ballot line. However, I think the case that they were also making is that we need to support the Green Party itself. You know, and, you know, I take from a story, you know, he mentioned that there was a libertarian candidate in the North Carolina Senate race as well. And the Republican Party isn't attacking them. I'm not sure what that's about. I, you know, the Republican Party ostensibly stands to lose as much from, you know, taking off some of those conservative votes as the Democratic Party does with the Green votes. But, you know, there's something to be said for potentially running on the libertarian line. He's describes himself as a libertarian socialist, as, as do I. You know, I'm, I'm open to it. I'm, I'm interested to see what other people in the chat have to say. What do you think, David? Yeah, uh, that all that all makes sense. I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, it depends district by district. I mean, I assume he was referring to like on the national level. Um, but yeah, no, I it all makes sense. My my thought, really, it's just like, you know, district by district, if you are in a primarily red district and you're a socialist, like maybe it makes sense to run red in that district because, yeah. you know, trying to convince folks to, you know, vote blue, you know, they <laughs> it might e be easier to run red and then, you know, get them on board with um, our ideas. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, David, let's, let's, you've given us some stuff to chew over. Thank you for calling in. Yeah. Thank you. All right, John, let's get you back in here to wrap up really briefly. I'm sorry you got disconnected. I forget, I forget what you were saying. Do you remember? Yeah. I was just saying how wild it was. Um, those, those cold calls that they were making and going mm -hmm. up to people and harassing people. I was just like, what are we going to do to counter that? And I, I just wanted to ask you just in general, where do you see the left in about five years or so hmm. um, with everything that's going on? Because I don't know about you, but I'm starting to feel like just we're on the ship that's about to get sank for the insurance money. <laughs> like they out here about to just loot the country. And that's that's what they're orchestrating um, cooperatively. Both parties and everybody else is just like, yeah, <laughs> let's take this thing down. Might as well. It was a good run. Um, we'll see what's up with China. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, look, I um, I have been alluding to this in some of my radars recently. And um, look, I don't want to sound overly conspiratorial, but sometimes I look back at 2020 and I feel like the enduring message out of the Black Lives Matter movement was you absolutely had the Democratic Party saying you absolutely must not do property damage. You must only do protests that don't inconvenience anybody at all, or we will withdraw all of our performative support from you. We will fund the police more. And the, the main message was to teach everybody, Democrat, Republican alike, there will be no political support. There will be no moral support. There will be no um, ethical support for any protest, no matter how justified, if so much as a, uh, building gets spray painted <laughs> and we see this now with the Morton's protests. There's so many conservatives who cry nonstop about free speech are saying, Oh, it's absolutely unconscionable that you would protest a Supreme court justice at a restaurant. And I'm like, okay, okay. I, you have your arguments about not protesting at his house because there's kids there. And you have these arguments about how it's dangerous and intimidation. But honestly, it doesn't get more innocuous 
than standing outside a restaurant in public with signs in a public space where he is inside the restaurant, cannot hear or see the protest. And the only consequence for him is that he has to leave early so, that to, so as to avoid the protesters and not get to his dessert courts. If we're at a point where free speech warriors are claiming that that was inappropriate, that's an inappropriate level of protest, what they're telling you is that you don't have a choice. You cannot protest. Protest is, in fact, not ever going to be sanctioned. And frankly, we shouldn't be looking for the establishment of either party to pat us on the back and endorse any kind of protest. The whole point of this, right, mm-hmm. is that we live in a country where the allegedly democratic mechanisms for us to change our system are broken. They're broken because of Citizens United in similar cases. They're broken because of corporate capture. They're broken as that famous Princeton study in 2014 says, because there's absolutely no relationship between what the majority of people want in this country and democratic outcomes. The people who get the Democrat, the outcomes that they want are the people who have lobbying dollars. And there's a direct correlation toward uh, affluent groups and their ability to get legislation passed. So that being the case, if there are literally no democratic mechanisms for change to occur, of course people are going to look to extrajudicial, extralegal, outside of the electoral system ways to get what they need. There's a there's a poll population of people who have been suffering for many, many, many decades, but it's becoming acute, acute right now in a way that, frankly, is also hurting people who are historically less touched by these kinds of economic swings. You have rent going up 40% in cities like New York and San Francisco. It's, it's, it's hitting people who normally are not the kind who really are particularly interested in disrupting the system. Mm-hmm. And if all of that is the case, obviously there's going to be a lot of tension on the public and the people are going to start to protest. So what are they doing? What is a bipartisan majority, a bipartisan establishment um, sect telling us that there is no such thing as a protest that is going to be sanctioned? So we need to stop, I think, looking for permission or good good PR from the mainstream news about protest. And, and I'm sorry that stopping us like these things hurt, you know, it, it, it when you have to step outside the system and when you have to stand in the middle of roads and when you have to be, get tear gas in the face and miss days of work and like the, like doing the work that Christian Smalls is doing, like, for instance, man, that is hard. Like, he, you know, he as he tells us, he's staying with family and it's like you don't get to have a life and it's not like people are having a life anyway that's the big problem and and, mo- and that'll be an ever-increasing thing with more people but do you think that that's all that's stopping is just that yeah what it, you were saying well i don't well i don't know that i was necessarily describing what's stopping us i'm describing why it is that there's a certain kind of messaging that's coming from the establishment because i think they're very yeah. well aware of how tenuous the situation is for them. We're watching videos of thousands of people pour into the president's residence in Sri Lanka, you know, a year <laughs> after, a year and a half after 1-6, and people are like, wow, scratching under the collar, <laughs> getting a little heated because they know, you know, Americans are so anti-revolutionary programmed. We are, we literally brag about our lack of revolution. You know, we brag about, you know, they've got regular people. They've got regular poor people. In, a, mm-hmm. in, a, in the richest country in the world where they don't have health care, bragging about the peaceful transfer of power. And I started saying this around the trucker, truckers protests. I had a little bit around 1-6, but the, the valence of that was so distasteful. It was difficult to have that conversation then. But the truckers protests, you know, they weren't 
killing anybody. They didn't hurt anybody. They didn't break into the Capitol. They simply blocked traffic. And even though I substantively disagree with the, what they were uh, blocking traffic for, I was envious of them for having the ability to draw national attention to a cause and be willing to at least dis- be disruptive enough to get that kind of political traction. And yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's, that's what the left needs to do now, whether or not they will do it because uh, they're not unwilling to risk the consequences of doing an action like that. I don't know. I think that frankly, one of the biggest barriers is that we have been trained to think that we need, like the democratic party is our friend. And if big brains like Dave, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Um, you know, Podesta or whoever gets on MSNBC to give their advice, uh, what's his face, you know, from South, who was married to the conservative woman. If all of those kinds of people who like to get on TV and tell the progressives they need to just sit down, if they're not saying, oh, that's a good protest, that's the way to protest, if we're not getting pat on the head by the Clinton machine and being told that we're doing it the right way, if some PR person comes on and says, oh, that's not good comms, you know, somebody might look at that protest and not like it. Oh, it's impolite to protest someone while they're having dinner. My God, dinner, not but dinner. Brianna, Terry me sue. You're like, I, you know, like. <laughs> exactly. And I, I do think that's a little bit. I think that we for historically have been easily scared off the scent by people saying, oh, Black Lives Matter is a bad slogan. You know, and I, and I hope to have Max Blumenthal on to talk about this. He's traveling right now, but he says he's going to come on. And I want to have um, uh, you know, he did a tweet when I was away last week. A lot of people were talking about a climate protest that blocked traffic, and there was a guy in the um, street who was trying to get a job, and he was a parolee, and he was arguing that, you know, this is this is going to get him thrown back into jail if he doesn't get to work on time. And people were saying this is an anti-working class protest, and it's a big problem. And obviously, you can structure, and we should think about how to design protests so not that they're popular to David Frum or whatever, but so that they're popular among the masses. That is true. But it also strikes me as short-sighted to think that there aren't going to be, of course, working people caught up in these kinds of conflicts. I was in France during a transit strike, and not a single one of them complained about it. They're like, yeah, there's traffic. It's France. C'est la vie. It's what happens. And we need to have that kind of attitudinal shift in this country as well. It can't just be we criticize every protest in the world because some working-class person is affected by it you know and so i want to have that conversation with max blumenthal as well to figure out you know what is the line there but broadly speaking it seems obvious to me that we have to have you know if the parolee is in trouble let's help the parolee let's not shit on the climate protesters right and and of course we must never ever blame the people in power for the fact that these protests exist um that people people just trying to hang on to, to, to the last little bits of life that they could possibly have Man, yeah, yeah, you you got it spot on, Bree. And uh, I don't know, man. This just hearing what happened with Matthew Ho just makes it makes me so frustrated. I want to put my head through glass. It's just I don't know. Yeah, but look, my my thought is this: if you know, I did a radar a week or two or three. I don't who knows. Time is a sloop. Um, weeks ago where I talked about how, like, is this the Demexit moment? Right. And it does feel to me like the, the things the democratic party has been doing for us, it was all of this Nina Turner stuff and all the super PACs and the little, for us, we, we, it was Bernie for us. It was Bernie really, but for Democrats as a whole, it's more of a slow accumulation of events. And Roe, I think was a big tipping point for people. And I think there's a receptivity for folks to hear about stories like what's going on with Matthew Ho and to say, holy shit, I can't believe the Democratic Party has this energy for this guy. 
Meanwhile, the campaigning for Henry Cuellar and in the in the Biden appointing the anti-choice federal judge, like all of these things, I think are a real wake-up call for Democrats. So while yes, it is dispiriting to hear stories like what's coming out of North Carolina, I think it also is an opportunity. And I, you know, I'm obviously not happy about it, but there is something to me that feels like forward motion in the air that I didn't feel when we were having these conversations. A year ago, a year ago, we were still having to convince people that Build Back Better wasn't going to happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, they were like, oh, but they bifurcated it. And like, you know, Manchin crossed his fingers and said, you know, he swore he swore on his uh, camp Bible that he was totally was going to pass the second half. Like we were still having that level of discourse with liberals a year ago. Okay, so it's well, progress. Yeah, it is. It is progress. I, I hope you're right, Bree. And this was a great episode. Um, keep up the good work and everything. Thank you, thank you for uh, for chiming in. Chiming in. This is your show. But <laughs> thank you for answering my question is what I'm trying to say. Thanks. Of course. Thank you for calling in as always, Ja. Keep the faith. All right, Nick, you are up next. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hi, um, I really enjoyed the episode. I've been following Matthew Ho, and of course, always nice to hear a, a, a sweet mama Jill. I don't know what else to call her at this point. Um, <laughs> so, um, but the reason why I wanted to call in, and uh, I know that he couldn't talk about it, which was the legal recourse, but um, basically, I just wanted to ask you a question with your perspective as a lawyer, but tell you a story first, which sure. is... Um, so I was working with the, uh, it's, it's unofficial, basically, it's just like names on forms. Uh, it's, it's pretty informal, but there was a Green Party of Kansas, and, and I guess there still is, I'm not a part of it anymore, but uh, the big push there for 2020 for ballot access, uh, basically for them to get recognized as a party, the percentage threshold of registered voters that would have needed to sign up for that, it would have been in excess of like 23,000 people to get party uh, recognition there. So the tactic then became getting Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker as independent candidates for far less signatures. Hmm. But of course, so it's a global pandemic. So any sort of like, and this is also why Bernie, you know, quit the uh, campaign is because it's kind of weird to even expect anybody to volunteer under those circumstances for in-person interactions on that scale that would be necessary to make it happen. So then the the tactic became basically legal recourse, which was to send letters into the government and uh, sorry, into the governor and a couple key state officials stating basically that Jill Stein had met the uh, independent uh, candidate threshold previously. And that should be grounds to basically maintain Green Party access on the independent line. But of course, basically for anyone to care about that, A, you know, the, the Democratic governor would have to care, uh, state officials would have to read that letter and feel any sort of, uh, I don't even know a threat, but just like being compelled in any way to make any sort of action on it. And then the advice that I kept getting was like to find legal recourse. So it was like, then the move was try to find an, a, an attorney or a lawyer and come up with retainer money and all of which just sounded like impossible and any sort of person that I would contact, of course, when anything was Green Party related, uh, it's just crickets. Like the mm -hmm. local ACLU wouldn't say anything despite their whole push at that point, you know, for uh, voter access and whatnot. But of course, choice of candidate was irrelevant to them. Any sort of 
uh, asking for help on legal grounds to get them ballot access. Again, met with nothing. Local DSA didn't even volunteer to let their members know that we were collecting signatures. They just took no action whatsoever. So I guess my question is, um, in your experience as a lawyer or even what you know about uh, legal recourse for these kinds of things, because it just seems like a, a completely uh, imperceptible black box to me how that even works, but um, I don't know, what could Matthew Ho do about this from a legal perspective, or what could I have done differently to get any sort of action on those grounds? So funny you should mention that. A couple of hours ago, he emailed me uh, the complaint in a lawsuit that they just filed today. And I'm scrolling through it. I'm looking at it now. Uh, I just am opening my computer and seeing this. And I'm looking at the... I'm looking for the damages. Wait a minute. What do they want? Ooh, this is long. Okay. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Sorry, I don't want to hold. I don't want to hold you up while I try to speak. I'm, I'm a patient right person. You could read the entire thing. Too. Uh, well, I was. I did want to read some of the the um, the claim. You know the summary of the claim at the top for you guys, but I'm looking at uh, plaintiff's reassert, blah, 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 blah. Uh, The NCSBE's failure to certify the Green Party as a new political party, despite compliance with all applicable requirements under state law, severely burdens plaintiff's First Amendment rights. A failure to certify as a political party is not justified by any legitimate or compelling state interest. Blah, blah, blah. Prayer for relief. Sorry, here we go. Um, they want a, a declaratory judgment holding that NCSBE's failure to certify the Green Party as a new political party is unconstitutional as applied. They want them to enter an order directing NCSBE to certify the Green Party as a new political party entitled to place its candidates on North Carolina's November 8th, 2022 general election ballot pursuant to statute with sufficient time to ensure the candidates' inclusion on the ballots to be prepared in mid-August 2022 and enjoining NCSBE from enforcing the July 1st filing deadline under um, statute as applied to plaintiffs, award other and further relief as the court deems proper. So they, they, they want to be on the ballot. <laughs> they're, they're filing to have the, the, de- the petition deadline not apply and to go ahead and be put on the va- ballot. That's the recourse. Well, but I mean, uh, you know, who do you even ask for help for that? I mean, there, ACLU doesn't exist to help the Green Party. They exist to help, like, Democrats or people that, I guess, liberals deem uh, worthy of help falling into the narrow category of, you know, legal gray areas that it's actually okay to defend them on. Like, uh, and, and I guess it's this whole thing about, like, there's no leftist judges to combat... Uh, federalist society like i don't know like like who who comes out like a uh prestige television show of fancy nonpartisan lawyer person to save the day i mean they have their own counsel and they're filing suit they're just the green party's filing suit all right f- fair enough I- <laughs> you know i i, I yeah I, you're right no one's coming to save them but it doesn't mean that they can't do it on their own you know, I think having publicity behind this is good. I think, like I said, it's a moment where a lot of Democrats might have more of an appetite for this sort of thing than they used to have. Um, you know, again, I didn't say this, it is, you know, I didn't mention this during the episode, but his, you know, the Democratic candidate is a black woman. And I think we can expect to hear some of the messaging that we typically hear. And I think a lot of Democrats are going to say, why should I root for this 
white man over this black woman, despite her being, you know, kind of a basic neoliberal who doesn't really stand for much of anything. All of that being the case, you know, I think no one's, you're right, no one's coming to save us. No one's coming to save them. Well, that's depressing. Okay, move on to the next caller. No, I don't think it's depressing, but it is what it is. Look, here. Um, look, here's here's the complaint. Uh, plaintiff, North Carolina Green Party, that's the NCGP, timely complied with all requirements under state law to qualify as a new political party and place its candidate on the North Carolina November uh, North Carolina's November to, uh, November eighth, twenty twenty two general election ballot. Nevertheless, by a divided three two vote, defendant North Carolina State Board of Elections, that's the NCSBE, declined to certify the Green Party as a new political party. The State Board of Elections cited no legal authority for its actions. They claim to be investigated on specified allegations of, quote, irregularities in the Green Party's petitions. But the State Board of Elections concedes that the Green Party submitted over 2,000 uh, more valid signatures than required under state law. Moreover, the State Board has not presented the Green Party with evidence of the purported irregularities in its petitions, nor has it given the Green Party any opportunity to defend the validity of the signatures on its petitions. You know, we know we know the facts as described to us, and we'll see what happens here. I think that if there were a lot of public pressure around this, if they were just plainly saying that parties can't get on the ballot for vibes and reasons, that's a big problem. And it's interesting to me that the the Libertarian Party in the state is being supportive of Matthew. We'll see where that goes as well. I would love to see this taken up as a cause by the Libertarians, given how much funding they have, frankly, and how much of a national platform. Robbie just... Had to leave uh, Rising earlier this morning to hop on a plane and go to some big libertarian conference in Las Vegas. They've got resources. They have cash. They're doing those kinds of things like having conferences. And to the extent that they're willing to be in our corner, even if it's for kind of selfish reasons because they do think that Greens are spoilers. Hey, I'm I'm here for it. So we'll see. If there are any libertarians in the chat, uh, get, in the, get in the queue and let's talk about it. Uh, one last thing before you move on to the next person. I don't know if you knew this, but the uh, person in the recorded call in that podcast is uh, mm-hmm. Tony Andege, who's actually like the one of the main ballot access committee Green Party guys and mm-hmm. the co-chair of the mm-hmm. North Carolina Green Party. So I, him being the one to kind of expose it on that call is extra funny. Like yeah. the, the Democrat volunteer that did that, like did not do their homework at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it was I mean, it's great. I mean, it's terrible, but it, it is something like out of a movie. And I don't know about Adam Driver playing Matthew Ho, <laughs> as he recommended. But it certainly does have um, enough uh, action to warrant a screenplay. Indeed. Well, thank you. Thank you for calling in. All right. Who is in the queue next? Sam, I'm going to bring you up next. Someone in the chat asked what uh, court is the Eastern District of North Carolina Western Division. Um, Go ahead, Sam. Unmute yourself for us. Hey, what's going on? I'm doing well. How are you, Sam? You sound buoyant. I love that uh, energy. That's, that's because I had dinner and beer, but I've been having a terrible day and <laughs> oh, a terrible I'm sorry. month. It's I'm good. Sorry, no, Sam. no problem. <laughs> hey, can we do podcast talk? Sure. Uh, do you listen to Citations Needed? I do. I saw they are celebrating five years today. Yeah, I I love their show. I listen to everyone, but this last one. I had to stop listening because they got so the guy was arguing, hey, this is not inflation. This is like something else. You can call it cost of living. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Nodding along. And then he says, but it's not a crisis like the media uh, says it is. And I was like, and I pause it. 
I don't think. <laughs> I think it kind of is a freaking crisis. I'm well, like barely affording groceries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who who was the guest? You know, I can't remember what his name was. He was some kind of uh, fancy academic. That's all I could say. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I haven't listened to that recent episode. I, I'm a little behind on my citations needed. I That's confess. Fine. No problem. Um, but uh, I really well, love I, the work that they do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Me too. Uh, I loved. I loved the episode. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't really have much to say. I just wanted to say hi because it's been a while and I was in a good mood. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you for sharing your positive, <laughs> you know, beer-fueled mood with us. You're making me want to crack open a, a Corona. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do it. <laughs> Thank All you, right. Sam. I hope later. you have a good evening. All right. Bye-bye. Hello, River. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind this evening. River, can you unmute yourself? It's the little mic button in the bottom right-ish on my phone, at least. I feel like it kind of looks like a corn cob or like a, an egg in a little shallow cup. It's like very just suggestive of a microphone. It's not a, a literal depiction. It's more of an abstract situation here. All right. Okay. Anthony, I think... I think she might have had some technical issues. I'll look for you at the end of the queue and bring you back up if you so desire. But Anthony, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey, what's up? I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Not much. Just uh, other than I voted green 2016. Green, that, that's a good rhyme. Green in 2016 and the green <laughs> 2020, even though I think Howie Hawkins is a bad, bad guy. Not a fan of him at all, but I voted for him. And, um, but I don't know this whole idea of, um, that you like, that you're ever going to be able to find a Democrat to support, uh, I ever again, I don't know. I think it's a little ridiculous in my opinion, cause, uh, I don't know. They're just, there's way too many deal breakers there for me. I mean, from the moment they get in there and they're on board with Pelosi and this and that, and, uh, taking pictures with Joe Biden and just like it's totally phony it's it's the whole and the thing is you know there's like you think there's a clear definition of who's the progressive one and who's the no they're all they're they're they all have this the same ideology and it's pretty amorphous and it's just philanthropy capital and it's that's all they got so i yeah. mean yeah mm-hmm. well what do you say let me more, yeah go ahead Oh, I'll just say it's not so much about the, you know, you might have a nice person or that you like running in a particular seat, but there's the, it's just, you got to look at it. It's Democrats and Republicans. They're two old institutions, hundreds and hundreds of years old. So of course the worst elements in this country are going to have their inroads in it, no matter what you can do. So, I mean, it's, 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 uh, they're too entrenched, the, the, the parties that are like 200 years old you're never going to change it and it's not so much about getting a nice person you like in there even if you got 20 nice people you like like you got 20 nice people right now they can't do anything or they won't yeah i do think that there were these opportunities you know i, I didn't truly i think comprehend how significant force of it was going to be when it was happening or how long a tail it was going to have but there were these moments that have happened in the last year and a half two years that were opportunities for elected Democrats to prove the value of having Democrats in office. 
right? To, to make the case for why we should still vote for Democrats and be invested in Democrats running for office. And one of those moments was the ability to not vote. Can you take me off of um, speaker? I think I'm hearing a little bit of feedback. Uh, But the ability, you know, to to, to vote Nancy Pelosi out of her speakership position or to hold it up for any number of concessions, that was really meaningful. And then the fact that the the margin in the House was so narrow for this entire term and that all of the progressives could have been Joe Manchining it the whole time and didn't really, frankly, revealed the extent to which there's not much utility in having them because this was a perfect storm for them. Given how few of them there are, the idea that the margins were perfectly narrow to give them all the power in the world and they didn't take it, you know, sure, the margins might be, you know, we might have more progressives in the House one day, but they're going to be probably even less powerful, assuming that the Democrats have a bigger margin over Republicans you know, what you want is that sweet spot where the progressives all voting as a block can change outcomes. And they told us very loudly and clearly that they were not willing to do that. Now, there are some progressives, and we've had some on the show, like Michaela Wilkes, who have said she would be willing to do that. And perhaps I have a different attitude about people like her, you know, aspiring to be in Congress and might be more willing to support someone like her who is at least willing to affirmatively say they're willing to be openly adversarial and hostile to the Democratic Party. And there are others who have said that they are open to the idea of a dirty break. So I think that's something to think about. But on the whole, you know, they've shown us what they're willing to do. It's not much. And I think that's why we're at this point. I think a lot of folks look at us and say, oh, you guys are whiny babies. You know, you're just helping Republicans. You know, you need to give them more time and more credit. But if you look at the trajectory of how we've gotten here, I think it's actually very reasonable. It was a very slow shift and it was based on evidence and it was based on their behavior, the repeated behavior over the course of years. Hey, you got that right. In my opinion, I think the progressives are just grifting. Honestly, they won't really stick out a claim on you know, issues where they have to differ from the Democrats, they just always call the Republicans still. And, you know, if they really had any true beliefs, they wouldn't be in that party. But it's and they've said that much. But I mean, I can't roll with someone like that. If that's I mean, the only Democrat I might even I donated to Michaela Wilkes uh, last time she ran. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. I don't know why I still donated to Democrats. I hated them. But I, I saw an ad about something about it. she got a traffic tickets and that uh, resonated with me. Mm-hmm. They, they put her mm-hmm. in the hole. But the only Democrat I even think is like interesting right now, there's this guy, Jeff Young in Kentucky, and he's his big thing is anti-Ukraine war. And he's I don't know. He ran as a Republican before. So I just kind of take him as a goofy joke kind of candidate. But he could mm-hmm. actually get in there. Mm-hmm. So that, other than that, no, I'm never a Democrat for me. Thank you, though. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for calling in, Anthony. All right, Carolina boy, you're up next. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Hey, Bree, can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. Okay, cool. So um, there's a main thing I wanted to get to, but before that, I, I just wanted to comment really quick about uh, about Matthew Ho and this uh, whole situation with the Senate race. So, you know, me personally, I've, uh, I've been done with the democratic party for, you know, since, uh, 2016 basically. And more recently I've, I've kind of like given up on electoralism altogether. 
but mm-hmm. I felt like, um, you know, I, I still like whenever I see like a green party candidate or a third ticket, uh, I, I do like to see them uh, try to get some kind of success. And so uh, like just seeing like the dirty tricks they played to pull him off the ticket was, I mean, it just kind of reminds me that I, I, I've come to realize part of the reason why I gave up on electoralism is because I, I don't believe that America is um, a democracy. And I don't mean mm-hmm. that in the way the the way that, you know, the the annoying right wingers will play that semantic game saying like, oh, we're a republic, not a democracy, like <laughs> all that bullshit. Like, no, that's splitting hairs. Like we we're not, you know, the, it, it, it's not just like the anti uh, majoritarianism, like elements of, you know, of us not being a democracy. Like, you know, the, all of the things, the way that the Senate set up, the way the Electoral College works, like it, it's all a bunch of bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, what I will say is, like the because yeah, the, the the democratic candidate uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if i didn't catch your podcast maybe um uh maybe matthew talked about it uh, sherry beasley she's uh she's a really terrible candidate she lost in uh just she lost her re-election she was the supreme court um chief justice in our state she lost her re-election in 2020 and now she's trying to pivot as like she's a tough on crime Democrats like appeal to moderates and centrists, and so that's why they're trying to kick uh, him uh, off the um, off the ballot. Because you know, if they get someone who's more progressive while she's making this right wing pivot, that'll like uh, I think that'll risk some of the like more progressive voters. So th- this is all just par for the course. Standard dirty politics and all that. So that's why I personally, I'm, I'm trying to like figure out ways we can try to make progress without uh, electoralism, um, because yeah, I just don't see it like doing us much favors. Um, but the, the main thing that I wanted to say was I had seen that, um, I guess I'm late to this a couple of weeks ago that Jank had called you a fake progressive or whatever, um, a fake <laughs> mm-hmm. leftist. Um, I thought that was totally out of bounds. I have, I only recently came on to you probably in like the last six months. Or so I caught you on Ryzen. Your segments have been amazing. Um, it really helped me like. Uh, channels away that I think I, I really appreciated it seeing you on the show. I, I think you do a great job of, of uh, representing the left. But what I will say about what he said, um, I do think that if you ta- if he took your name out of that list, because I think he met- mentioned Glenn and he mentioned Jimmy Dore, I don't believe what he was saying was necessarily wrong at all. Because um, I, the way that I see them really trying to cater to this idea that there are some sort of right wing populists that we can. Uh, form an alliance with it is so naive. I don't see any of that being true. And, and I hate that I've seen them get to the point where they're trying to essentially gaslight us into thinking that Tucker Carlson is like an actual ally of the working class or any sort of populist movement. And I, like, I was just especially shocked to see how Glenn, like after the Buffalo shooting, sprinted as fast as he could to lick the dog shit off Tucker's boots and protect him when people are trying to rightfully ask questions about the dude that writes his manifesto, talks about the great replacement. And, um, and it sounds just like a, you know, a, an average ass uh, skit on Tucker's segment, uh, you know, on, on Tucker's show or whatever. So yeah, that, that I, I just don't take him seriously. Now I see he's even like defending Bolsonaro or some shit, like the guy that tried to throw him in jail and take his kids away. So I, I just think he's a troll at this point. I don't take him seriously at all, but I thought, thought that the fact that Jank included you, um, and that list meant that, you know, he didn't know anything about, um, anything really about your work and, and what you were trying to, um, and, and like the full body work, your work and what you're trying to do. But my general question is, 
do you think that there actually is any kind of real um, ground that, like in, any progress that can be made by meeting any kind of ground with some of these supposed right-wing populists? Because I, I just think it's all a mirage. I think it's all, uh, you know, a fake play to try to, you know, gaslight some people on the left thinking, you know, J.D. Vance or Ron DeSantis or whatever is, is uh, you know, it can be an ally when they're not. Well, I saw a chart recently, like a poll recently, about people's voting preferences and, you know, what single issue voters are interested in. And often, as is often the case when you look at these charts of, that really distill out the, the, not just what people kind of feel somewhat kind of way about or what they might tweet about or what they might be angry about, but what they're actually going to vote on. There is a great deal of identity of interest among people, at least in terms of the topics that they care about the most. Now, how to address those topics is a different story. How to find Mm -hmm. solutions to those problems is a different story. So between that and the fact that I hate to take it all the way back to 2016, but the Mm -hmm. reality is that, but for Obama to Trump voters, Hillary Clinton would have won, right? Yeah, yeah no, that's a, that's a bunch of BS. Um, you know, I, I just I just feel like it's difficult to ignore. I don't know if those Obama to Trump well, voters are the same thing as a populist right, you know, a populist right wing voter or, or whatever. But I do know that there's some co- cohort of Trump voters. I'm not saying they're not racist or they're great people or whatever. I don't care to opine upon their moral merit. All I know is that at one point they voted for Obama and one point they voted for Donald Trump. No, sorry, sorry. I I misheard what you said. In in my mind, I thought you I thought you were saying that. But for um, like, uh, I don't know why I thought you you were saying, but for Jill Stein voters or something, Hillary Clinton would have won. I thought no, that, no, no, I don't know no. Why I thought that. Sorry, yeah. No, that at the at the end of the day, you know, you can say what you want about Trump voters, but at one point, a lot of them voted Democrat, and then they changed their mind, which says to me that I, I'm not talking yeah. about saving their souls or repenting. I'm not talking about any of that. Yeah. All I'm saying is, from an electoral perspective, it seems to me if they once voted for Barack Obama, they could be convinced to vote for a left, a, a more liberal left candidate again. And I think that a lot of the reasons that people were liked Obama in the first instance was because he presented himself as a left populist. He presented himself as yeah. anti-war. He had presented himself as doing campaign finance reform. He presented himself as a as a, as a advocate for, you know, a public option. You know, he mm-hmm. presented himself mm-hmm. in these ways. And to the extent that some of those Obama Trump voters are still looking for that in an independent populist mm-hmm. candidate, you know, mm-hmm. I think that it, that is real. Now, I feel differently. Yeah. I know I I consider Glenn Greenwald to be a friend, but I feel very differently than he does about. Tucker Carlson. I come to Tucker Carlson with more skepticism about his motives um, than I think Glenn Greenwald does. And we also have a different relationship with Tucker Carlson. I don't, you know, I've never spoken to the man. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm judging him based on his person his public persona. You know, Glenn has a different relationship with him. It is what it is. And I've talked to Glenn about it on the show at length with Nathan Robinson, who offered, I think some really constructive pushback about how he handles his Tucker Carlson news appearances. And I really appreciate Glenn for always being willing to yeah, I be publicly confronted I feel like on those kinds of things. He also worse. recently went on with the Vanguard, Vanguard boys. You guys should go check that out on their channel as well. And they, mm-hmm. they pushed him as they do on this exact subject. But I do, I do think 
whether or not my approach would be the same as some of these other people, I very much do think that there is there are gains to trade here with respect to coalition building with some people, some people who identify as conservative or identify or, or who haven't voted for that. Trump. Because they obviously have at some point, some of them, enough to swing an election for Dems, have in the past supported kind of left populist ideals in their vote for Obama in 2008. What do you make of that? Yeah, I know. I, I think there is some truth to that for sure. Um, oh, are you still here? And Sorry, can you hear me? Carolina boy, what's going on? I can see your thing flashing like you're talking, but I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Oh, this confounded app. Not sure what's going on there, Carolina boy. If you go to the end of the queue, I'll bring you back up. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry if you guys can hear him and I just can't hear him. Well, let me let me look at the chat real quick and make sure it's not a me problem. Oh, you can hear him. Well, why can't I hear him? Can you not hear me? Oh, 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 okay. I hear you. I'm sorry. I got you. Okay. Yeah, no, I was just saying, um, I agree. I think that there is some truth to that for sure. Um, some, some truth. I think, I think the evidence is kind of mixed. And so what I can give you for my example, um, because I, I remember in 2008, Obama actually won my state, uh, barely. Mm-hmm. He, he won North Carolina and, uh, my County, uh, um, I don't want to disclose too close where I live, but my County is uh, a very rural, uh, part of the state. Um, and I, I will say it's it, it largely pretty white and, uh, I, I would even say it is pr- a pretty racist place. I'm not, I'm not like, um, we're not that far away from the, um, the headquarters for one of the largest chapters of the Ku Klux Klan in the country, the loyal white knights, the Ku Klux Klan, mm. um, not that far away from that. And, uh, Obama I, he he didn't win, but he got he got like in the 40s or something um, in 08. And uh, I don't remember 2016 or t- I think both times, 2016 and 20, uh, Trump won our county by uh, 70, 80 percent or something like just a, a huge blowout. So I definitely think there there is some element of truth to that. I, I do think there is also probably some element of truth to the fact that, you know, a lot of these people here don't like the fact that someone like Mitt Romney or John McCain was like, you know, a much more polite and not, you know, as, um, you know, demagoguing of immigrants or um, it didn't use dog whistles and stuff like that. Or like when um, McCain pushed back on one of his supporters trying to like smear Obama and say that he can't trust him because he's an Arab or whatever, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, th- I think there's I think there's an element of truth to both of those things for sure. But you know, it's just what I'm seeing is I just don't know that. Um, I, I just don't know what battles we can really win, like what progress we can make, because obviously there are just issues that we're just never going to agree on. OK, social justice movements, Black Lives Matter, stuff like that. These people fundamentally disagree with us. We're, we're not going to make virtually any progress on uh, stuff like that. OK, but could we make some progress on like economic issues or healthcare or. Um, or, you know, some foreign policy stuff, like not fighting on wars or even just reducing the defense budget. I, I would like to think so, but, um, the, it's just the thing that I keep saying is I just always see the the biggest thing for a lot of these, uh, voters is, you know, the culture wars I just see is like really rotted their brains. And so the litmus test for getting their support is, um, is fighting like some of these, 
you know, dumb culture war issues that, you know, people like Tucker or, you know, people like, you know, the Daily Wire, the, you know, the far right um, these days that they're always uh, pushing. So that's that's just my thoughts. Yeah, no, I I hear you. I hear you as I as I do this, you know, kind of media and comms experiment that is being on the hill. And I, like I, it. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you do. I was but skeptical I, at first, but I, <laughs> I do find it interesting. Uh, I will say. Well, I, I, I'm thinking a lot about how to best address the kind of editorial thrust of the stories, right? Because what happens is that something will come up that makes the left look bad or liberals look bad. And I will frankly agree with it. I will agree <laughs> that it looks bad. I will agree with Robbie and Kim that it's, I don't, you know, I don't like what the liberals are doing or whatever. Yeah. An example is, you know, I had some criticisms of that. Um, the young black professor from Berkeley who had that colloquy with Josh Howley over trans issues. I, I did not care for how she handled it. I obviously agree with her substantively, but I did not think it was a good look as the kids say. The problem is that someone brings up something like that in their radar or in a segment, you know, that's an editorial decision to have a segment about it. I agree with the more kind of, you know, I'm not criticizing from them from the right. I'm criticizing from the left, but ultimately I'm agreeing that the liberals are a problem. And then I, if, if I don't have an equal, and if there aren't a bunch of segments about how Lauren Berbert doesn't think there should be a first amendment or whatever crazy loony, horrible thing Republicans have said, then the overall thrust is that I'm kind of agreeing that the right is better than the left. Right. And I don't always want to wait. I don't want to spend my time, my thing, my bit, you know, my, my like media preferences aren't to talk about this is who the police shot today. I saw a video about a cops hitting a bunch of kids and doing a hit and run on their bikes. Like this stuff is happening and I'm consuming it in the media. And I think it's a problem, but my media interest, my kind of intellectual interest isn't in just doing an accounting of every terrible thing Republicans have done. But I feel pressure to do that because if I don't do that, I'm concerned about what the overall thrust of the show is. So here's why I'm saying that I'm saying all of that. Mm-hmm. because I, as I think about how I best address this, it's like, do I do tit for tat? And every time they do something with a liberal looking stupid, I, I comb the internet for a Republican looking stupid and weigh, waste all my radars and all of my breath on talking about these little one for one culture war wars. Or do I engage in a bigger project of trying to convince people that the culture wars don't matter by constantly reinforcing, look at these big, horrible economic things they're doing to suppress you. They want you to look over here at Disneyland or whatever Ron DeSantis is up to, but look at what he's actually doing and why your home prices are so high in Florida. And that, I think, is my preference. And I think from an electoral perspective, there's something there as well. you know. And I hear Mm -hmm. you saying that people really care about the culture wars. Maybe it's 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 a futile... Uh, objective, but I have to believe that there has to be some effort to communicate with people about why they shouldn't care that like, maybe it is the case. And I don't want to, I'm not saying this to excuse bigotry, obviously, but maybe it is the case that if you hate black people, that shouldn't be your number one political priority on voting against black lives matter. Or if you hate trans people, your number one issue shouldn't be someone telling you, you should be consumed with transition ages Etc. Mm-hmm. And when the kids mm-hmm. can get go, go on hormones, like you, maybe we can disagree about that, but maybe you are being defrauded. Maybe you're being tricked into thinking that that should be the thing that you vote on, instead of trying to convince people 
you know, in an electoral cycle context, you know, that that's that, that, that should change their mind on those kinds of issues. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, I, I, I think that's interesting. I, I just don't know that my, my thing is, I, I feel personally like a lot of these people, once they've really gotten into these issues of the culture wars that they've, um, they've gotten too far gone. And so I don't know. I like if, if I had some like bigger presence in media, I think one of the things that I would try to do is to sort of expose the people that are distracting them with these issues like Tucker that, you know, pretend like they're, you know, the populist looking out for like the best interests of these types of people when, when they're actually elitist trying to um, mm-hmm. really gaslight them into uh, supporting these establishment corporatist politicians because, you know, like people like Tucker is the number one, you know, corporate mainstream news media host on the biggest corporate mainstream media news channel in, in the country. And so he's not some kind of outsider that's, mm-hmm. um, that's trying to help us. And so that, that's, that's the, that's sort of the direction that, you know, I would personally try to take it. Um, but I mean, I, I don't even know if that, like for, for a lot of people that they've gotten deep into, into this stuff, I just don't, I just don't even know that. Uh, that wouldn't necessarily work. I feel like really the the only thing that could help, and I don't even, and this is just the least possible thing, would be like us actually winning power and uh, delivering substantively for those people. But um, and you know to let them realize like all this stuff was you know ju- just a load of garbage. But I just don't you know I just don't see us winning power. Like I said, America is not a democracy. I don't see yeah. you know us you know having much success that lately. So I hate to sound doomeristic, but um, I really enjoy seeing you on uh, on rising these segments, and um, I, I like the work that you're doing. And I, the last thing I just want to say is I um, you know I see what's going on like in independent media. The the uh, incentives are there for people to you know really for a lot of lefties to pivot and um, go hard on fighting these culture wars on alongside of the right. And so I hope that you won't do that. And I don't see that you've done that at all uh, so far, anything like that, but I just know that the, the conflicts of interest and incentives are there. So, but I I appreciate you so much. And uh, uh, you know, thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you. And I appreciate your, your kind words and, and giving me perspective from how you see other parts of the country operating. Well, one other thing that did come to mind was, and maybe this is naive, but I do think back to this story that Ben Jealous told, and I know I talk about it all the time, but on the campaign trail in 2016, he says he remembers traveling around with Bernie. Obviously, he gives a stump speech, and there's a part of the stump speech about Black Lives Matter or what have you. And he remembers the first time that Bernie gave the speech in a rural, predominantly white environment, and he remembers cringing as that part of the speech comes up because he assumes that the he's going to lose the audience, and the the Black Lives Matter comes in a group of things that Bernie's saying. You know, we're going to fight for fifteen dollars minimum wage. Yeah, we're going to fight for health care. Yeah, we're going to fight for, you know, canceling medical debt. Yeah, we're going to cancel student loan debt. Yeah, and as he's going in on, and, and Ben Jealous feels this bit about Black Lives Matter is coming. He's tenting up, tenting up, tenting up, and he says, and we're going to fight for Black Lives. And everyone goes, yeah, and apparently he says they cheered louder than they cheered for anything else in the thing, and that he felt ashamed that he had had such a low expectation of this crowd. And I do think there is something to the idea that if you are genuinely seen as fighting for all of these interests, right? Every one of those interests isn't going to be for you. Like I don't need medical debt cancellation. 
you know, I don't need a $15 minimum wage, but if I understand that there's something in there for me and everyone understands there's something in there for them that we are not feeling like we're, it's a zero sum game and we're pit against each other. And we've got to be mad at immigrants or mad at black people or mad at blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, and I do have some hope that, that, you know, Bernie was successful because he was able to seem like he was genuinely interested in helping everybody and that there can be a candidate like that again. And that it's not about throwing various interest groups under the bus. It's about convincing people to subscribe to the bigger ideology than the culture wars. And if Bernie did it, mm-hmm. you know, I think we can do it again. Yeah. Um, I, I hope uh, I just, you know, I see how all of it, how all of it ended. I mean, you know, I know that there's always possibilities in the future that, you know, we can be more successful with that. Um, but um uh, I'll just say I have my doubts, but I mean, I hope it works. One, one thing uh, that actually kind of reminded me of, I did, I heard somewhere on some, I don't know, some, some YouTuber show or something that did kind of like a similar call-in show, like, like you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And somebody was calling that uh, was uh, saying, basically it, it, it sounded like real white nationalist talking points Mm. Um, about like white replacement and all this stuff, but they were pivoting to like, say like the solutions and stuff they wanted was, um, was basically all of the things that like the black lives matter, like, you know, social justice movement, like all of our like criminal justice reforms, like defunding the police and all this stuff, because they were like, and they were like kind of deluded, I think in a lot of ways, because they were saying like, you know, look at how, um, Kyle Rittenhouse, he got off because he only shot and killed white people. Um, mm-hmm. If he had killed black people, he would have been arrested. But the Arbery's, that similar situation because they got they killed black people, um, they arrested everybody there, but not even uh, the, the just the one guy that shot him and, and all that stuff. So I, I thought he was like kind of deluded, like thinking that kind of things and saying like you know the cops, you know uh, any cop that kills a black person like George Floyd, he goes to jail, uh, even though it was he was trying to say it was questionable, like with the drugs, even though we know it's not. But they were saying, but then a black cop kills Ashley Babbitt and he gets off scot-free and all this stuff. So he was saying we need to defund the police and, uh, and the security state and, and all this stuff. It, it was like really backwards, but I was thinking it would be funny if we could try to, you know, frame this as like frame these issues as like something that's affecting, you know, the poor rural white working class um, so that we could get them on our side for those things as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think that's right. I, I think, look, there is an argument that it's that, Limiting, you know, putting, making, making criminal justice reform a black issue in the minds of so many Americans is a strategic error. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. you can say something disproportionately affects black people and ha- you use slogans like Black Lives Matter to mobilize black people. But there is a, there is a point at which I think sometimes framing everything as a black issue is actually not for black people. It's intended to exploit the guilt of white liberals, which has a backlash mm-hmm. potentially mm-hmm. with white working class people. And that backlash isn't necessarily necessary. It's not to say that Black Lives Matter is a bad slogan or you shouldn't say it or, or a movement call. I shouldn't say slogan. But to say that, like, you should also be have a more expansive narrative that talks to people of all kinds of stripes about why this is an issue that should matter to them. And I hear liberals, liberal elites do this all the time with every issue. It's like, yeah, if you're going into a black community – if you're talking to a black audience, make the case for why student debt cancellation disproportionately affects black women. Make the case for why uh, 
mm-hmm. Medicare for all will have this great effect on closing the maternal mortality gap. You should absolutely be saying that. But you got to mix up the message a little bit on the national stage because you're talking to everybody. And I have seen, I saw this at the abortion protest uh, the day the decision came down. The, the the speakers were saying to like an all white crowd, you know, this is a black issue. This is a black yeah. issue. This is a black. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, like I mean, like yeah, but like also n- know your audience. It almost yeah. felt a little disrespectful. <laughs> yeah, and I and I will say, and yeah, so the one the thing I will say about that is that's the type of stuff that. Tucker will grab and run mm-hmm. with to try to, you know, take to his audience, which he knows is predominantly uh, going to be white. And he's going to tell them, look, they're coming after you. Like all of the cultural war stuff these days that they um, talk about, whatever they bring up, whenever it's censorship or um, uh, any kind of uh, even police brutality or the security state and all that stuff. It's all, it's all about trying to make, like essentially make the white people in the white working class uh, feel like they are the ones who are being targeted and all this stuff. Because Tucker mm-hmm. for years, he was always a poli- pro-police apologist, propagandist. And then as soon as what happened to Ashley ba- Babbitt, he flipped and, you know, turned into defund the police and all the, and all that type of stuff. So it's totally bad faith, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think we, we definitely need to do better um, in the way that we make these arguments and realize that, you know, if we want to try to get, you know, people from like the communities like where I live in on our side, um, the messaging, um, you know, needs to be more strategic with that. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me for so long, Carolina boy. Yeah, no, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, thank you and uh, hope to be on soon. All right. Keep the faith. Yep. All right. Uh, Daryl, how you doing? Hey, pretty good. Get the Aubrey. What's on your mind this evening? Um, well, first, I think uh, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. Sure. The if we imagine that America is basically in the position that Britain was in, essentially, when America was rising, wouldn't you kind of want an Obama type in office right now? Someone who's very much about, you know, about power and knows how to use it effectively and is not squeamish about doing so and all of that. But at the same time. Daryl? After about the same time, there was like a shuffle and you went away. Uh-oh. There you go. You're back. How about now? I can okay. hear you. Where'd you lose me? At the same time. Okay. So essentially we're at the same position that Britain was in more or less when America was rising. And so you have kind of a need to make hard strategic decisions about power and about how to apply it, how to use it. So at that time, wouldn't you want someone more like an Obama who's not squeamish about, you know, using power in that way, knows what he's doing in that sense, but still has a little bit of a smarter sensibility has more restraint understands what limits are like this is the same president who was willing to re-engage you know with cuba and was willing to reformat how america behaved in the world even though you know not perfect by any means but i think there's an argument that that is better than say a green who may not be able to, to who may just not have that strategic depth i guess i'm i'm trying to understand 
what it is that Obama brings to the table that a Green Party candidate, assuming, of course, they got into office and all of that. That's usually the criticism of Greens, not the substantive criticism of Greens. I mean, is your idea that Greens wouldn't want to reengage with Cuba or you know, I mean, what 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 is the contract? What is the difference in outcomes that you would imagine existing? What does Obama bring to this equation? So, so yeah, I I don't think that the Greens wouldn't want to. I think the Greens would probably do try to do everything at once, and I think that would be a big mistake. You know, like there there are definitely certain things that are kind of structural in terms of how America operates, and there's certain things where if you push you're going to have a really bad backlash if you're not really prepared for, for what you're trying to unleash. You know, uh, I think Germany is a good example right now of kind of, you have a, a very rapid reformatting of the way Germany was oriented and it's going to cause a lot of suffering and is causing a lot of suffering right now because they didn't do it in a, in a planned and strategic way. It was like, you know, kind of just without really thinking through the consequences, okay, we're just going to cut off our energy supplier, which is like a baseline of your entire economy. That's something that's, you know, smart and good to do, but maybe not good to do when you shut down all your nuclear plants and et cetera, et cetera. You know, like there's just, you, you kind of have to make smart decisions about how you go about even doing the right thing. So okay, but even if I, even if I bought this idea, that if we got a left candidate, they would have to, you know, be as incrementalist in their approach as Obama. Even if I bought that argument that, you know, we spend so much time criticizing Obama for not using the power that he had to advance left causes. It seems a little strange for me that the sell is we need someone more like that and not that Obama needs to be more to the left. But let me just, let me just accept if I just, even if I just accepted the premise why do you think that a Green Party candidate would be less likely to have political instincts and have a good sense of what the moment will bear and what can be achieved and how to use movements to bolster its political position than someone like Barack Obama, who actually had a movement behind him, shut down that movement energy, immediately capitulated to Wall Street, didn't use any of the uh, fire and ire about the financial crisis to to fortify his political position, didn't take any enemies, didn't distribute the TARP funds in a way that inured to the benefit of the American public who lost 40 or 50% of their wealth in the housing crash, didn't use a supermajority to secure a public option, you know, or codify Roe or do any number of things, ended up punking out over his Supreme Court, last Supreme Court appointment. What What is the argument for why a Green Party candidate who, again, is not unknown and unnamed, and this is a pure hypothetical, why the presumption that they would have a worse understanding of how to use power than Barack Obama? I mean, I think it's, number one, that they haven't had any. They haven't been able to effectively build this type of movement that Obama was able to build. Like, you, I, I completely agree with everything you said about the choices that he made. But the fact is, he was in a position to make those choices because of because of his political acumen, because of his ability to kind of navigate. And I don't, I mean, I just don't know that Greens have that. Like their party structure is putting out, 
not the same type of candidates in terms of their views, but they have the same, I guess, level of grip on public, you know, fervor as Democrats do. If they, I mean, if they're able to, you know, overcome the Democrats, it's just because of their own failures. It won't be because the Greens are necessarily doing anything different right now. So if there were, like, I really uh, like Sharma Sawan as someone who's a fighter and who seems to know how to build that kind of movement and things like that. But that, that's a different energy. So, okay. I, 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 I think for one, there's a little bit of a misdiagnosis uh, about how Barack Obama came to be in power. People who are like David Sirota and people who are like professionals writing and following about these things at the time could tell you in a lot more detail and a lot better than I can about the choices that were made by the Democratic Party establishment to throw their lot in with Barack Obama and choose him. Barack Obama was not some outsider candidate running on his lonesome. There was some negotiation about whether or not it was going to be him or Hillary Clinton but plenty of Democratic Party acolytes lined up behind Barack Obama and frankly positioned him as a junior senator to, to, to go for the White House. So this was not some revolutionary candidate. It was a candidate that managed to speak and present himself in a way to capture revolutionary energy. But he was not a candidate like Bernie Sanders who was operating outside of or antagonistically to the Democratic Party. So to compare Barack Obama to a Green Party candidate and say he's just better at strategy in the context of us being here to get together because we talked about we're talking about an episode in which Matthew Ho has been I, I would argue potentially illegally railroaded by the Democratic Party to be pushed off the ballot to say that the Green Party's failures in this context are because it doesn't understand power and that Barack Obama by contrast does and that's why he succeeded I think is a misunderstanding of power and how the system operates in and of itself. So it is, I think, accurate to say that the Democrat, the Green Party faces a lot of challenges. You can, you know, maybe feel like, oh, it's not worth it because it's a long game and it's never going to happen. I disagree with that, but I understand that sentiment. But I don't think it's accurate to say the Democratic Party's failure to achieve is, uh, sorry, the Green Party's, uh, uh, Green Party's failure to achieve the presidency is evidence that they have a poor understanding of power. It's the same kind of argument people made about Bernie Sanders. Oh, well, he didn't win the primary, so why do you think he could have won the general? He didn't win the primary, why do you think that people actually liked him? He didn't win the primary, so why do you think people actually like Medicare for all? And on and on and on. Having these um, inaccurate, I think, assessments of cause and effect. Now, if you want to look at any given Green Party candidate and say, uh, I think their approach wasn't great or the way they come off wouldn't resonate with a lot of Americans and this person isn't great or that person isn't great. I think that's fair. And there are a lot of Democrats who I also don't think could win national office. Look at Kamala Harris. <laughs> um, but I don't think that's a criticism of the Green Party per se. Any any party can put forward candidates that are like less than ideal. It's a, that's a difficult well, formula to get right. I'm not yeah, go talking ahead. about a single race though. I, I get what you're saying, but I'm not talking about just a single race. The Green Party has been in existence for decades at this point, you know, and you'd be hard pressed to see what impact they've had over that time. Well, I, I, don't know. Well <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I would say you're hard pressed to see the impact. I mean, 
many people <laughs> to attribute the Green Party's uh, presence to uh, <laughs> George Bush's assistance <laughs> to the presidency. There have been robust conversations about the Green Party and the status of the Democratic Party since, especially in 2000. Ralph Nader was an important national figure and before he ran for president was considered by many and is still considered by many to be a national hero of sorts because of his consumer advocacy and lending his voice to the Green Party, I think was an incredibly important moment. You know, I I think that many people, especially in this moment, are increasingly looking to the Democratic Party. I mean, it's like saying, you know, DSA had 500 people or whatever in it, and then AOC won, and then it exploded, or Bernie ran, and it exploded. You know, there are potentials, and there's potential in a lot of these movements, and it feels a little defeatist to pretend that just because someone hasn't won yet, America didn't exist, and then it did. Like, should the revolutionaries have said no one's ever broken off from the British crown before? Should the the Haitians have never said no one's ever had a successful slave revolt, so let's not try to fight for our independence? I I don't know that I – I mean, I do know. I do know that I do not buy that argument. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm I'm not saying that, though. That's – I'm saying that the Green Party itself hasn't really – I haven't seen candidates that have the kind of strategic acumen that that I'm talking about. And what did you think of Matthew Ho? Other parties or other groups that could do better. What's what did that? you think of Matthew Ho? He slam dunked his signature, his petition signature requirement to get on the ballot. I found him to present extremely well and thought he had a lot of very broad appeal as a ex-Marine and blah, 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 and all of these things that appeal to a lot of different kinds of folks while also having these anti-war credentials and uh, obviously the whole panoply of left policy planks that we all knew and loved about the Bernie Sanders campaign. And he did his job. He got on the ballot and he's not on the ballot, not because he didn't have policy acumen or political acumen or didn't message, right? He's not on the ballot because the democratic party hates greens and sees greens as a real threat. And they sit down one of their, their party's biggest powerhouse lawyers to go and make sure that he wasn't on the ballot because they weren't confident that their candidate could stand up against him and win if he was in the mix. And to me, that's, that's, that's uh, an endorsement of sorts of the power that he does have. Do you see it differently? I, I don't see it differently. I just, you do have to be able to overcome that. Like you do have to be able to operate when the world is in contention against you. And I I kind of bring it back to the reason that that's important, especially now for America right now, for the presidency, especially right now, is because of the situation that America is in globally and that the world is in right now. Just that transition, that very transitional moment that we're in is not one where America can really afford. I mean, we've already had eight years of really terrible leadership uh, or we will have. So. I, I think it's going to be a really hard road to hope. Whoever gets into that office post Biden, and you want someone who's going to be able to knock it out of the park, at least try to, because it's going to be rough. I need someone who's going to knock it out of the park. I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I respect people who feel differently. My, I don't, I don't want to melt into a puddle at the idea of trying in a, in a Republican winning. And you can tell me that I'm privileged. I am. 
you can tell me that it's not, you know, for me to say that I should throw an election or, you know, I'm not going to suffer the consequences of a Republican being in, pres- in, in office. That is true. But I also live in the District of Columbia, which is not a state, and I will not be voting for Democrats. <laughs> um, and I don't and I don't know that I would be regardless. The, the threat of a Republican winning is not a threat that works on me. So if they don't want Republicans to win, they should elect some good left candidates that would actually give me an affirmative reason to vote for Democrats. And if they don't want to do that, well, then I hope they can find the vote somewhere else because they're not going to find it with me. Yeah, I'm. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not pro Republican winning. I'm not pro Democrat winning. I would love to see a third party person win, but I am pointing out, and really just more of a, just to kind of have a different discussion other than you know generally agreeing back and forth and things like that. No, and I appreciate there is something to say about the, um, just about the the current state and. Again, whoever gets into that office is going to have some real problems and is going to probably going to look bad and not going to be able to succeed just because of what they're up against, regardless of how good that candidate is. Um, so, I don't know. Well, I appreciate you moving this with, with me, um, Daryl, and I'd like to see what other people in the chat have to say and think. Thank you for calling in. Before I, well, before I go... You do owe me a, a message from uh, Mexico City. How's that? Wait, what is that? What are we no. talking about? Yeah, the maybe it was two weeks ago uh, when I called in, and you said you had a, a media person. Oh, in Mexico City, that is no. vaguely familiar. Oh, 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 Brianna Blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, from the campaign. Okay, yes. I will connect you yeah, for yeah. sure. I forgot about that. I'm going to make a note in my um, call-in Slack, (laughs) which is notes to myself that I had to take in during a call-in. Okay. Brianna, Blewett, Daryl. Okay. Thanks, Daryl. All right. I'm going to hop around a little bit because I saw – oh, where'd you go? I was just going to pull you from the back because you were up here before, and now I see that you've disappeared again. So I'm going to keep pushing forward. Uh, Jonathan, you're up. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey, Bree, how does that sound? Perfect. Lovely. Well, given the last two calls, I have to feel like I say something that I already said, but I have to say it again, which is that here in Iowa, a state that went for Obama twice and then Trump, it is not the case that more people came out to vote for Donald Trump than voted for Mitt Romney. It is not the case that we turned out in droves for love of Donald Trump. Hmm. It is the 10-point gap of no-shows that didn't show up for the corporatist, imperialist, identitarian. That is Hillary Clinton. Hmm. So even you, your take is better than the last two callers, but even you say, quote-unquote, when people flip from Obama to Trump, you're mixed, diagnosing the problem a little bit because there's a 10-point gap of people to whom you need to speak directly on issues that they care about to get them to show up at all. Well, the the question to me, all due respect, was whether or not I feel like there was any uh, gains to be had from reaching out to Trump voters and conservatives. So I'm I'm not ignoring or missing in my diagnosis people who did not vote. The question was to me, is there any point in trying to reach out to Trump voters slash conservatives? So I'm talking about not the people who stayed at home who obviously chose not to vote for Trump or potentially even identify as conservative, but the people who did. 
And I even with the no shows of people who don't really uh, analyze the issues that closely. And a lot of those Trump voters, like in that case, New Hampshire and Vermont become a better example than my state of Iowa, because as you know, Bernie Sanders voters are people who also voted for Donald Trump. And isn't that proof that there is in fact a case to be made that those people exist and are listening and or maybe they're very issue based, but that just means you have to give them something other than platitudes and they'll show up. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I'm not entirely sure what I said to suggest otherwise. It, it was just a, well, maybe it was just a wording thing, but I just have to, uh, as much as I sympathize with Carolina Mann's skepticism, I disagree. Like I, there was like someone who named Derek who called in some weeks ago who said you mm-hmm. have to go co-opt the Libertarian Party. And I was like, that's not as crazy as it sounds. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt in my mind that if you want any third party to succeed, it has to represent all the third parties, right? You, you have to either, his idea was to go and force green or labor ideas onto the libertarian platform, or whether it takes the form of adopting libertarian ideas onto your green, labor, progressive, forward, whatever mm-hmm. platform, whatever you want to call it. If there's no synthesis, there's no hope. And all you got to do is give them something. And the things that you give them, if you like look into money velocity and they're, they're really rather innocuous and things that you really, I think, want anyway. Even people on that uh, you're huge fans of, like Christopher Hedges, is pretty based on the monetary system. When you hear him talk about stock buybacks and all that stuff, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just, I mean, I could go on for days about what that platform looks like and how what you, but I, you know, whether you say, okay, here's a, just a quick example. You want a wealth tax? You give them income tax. It might sound like a zero sum to you, but I don't think that it is. I think given how the monetary system is structured and how banking is structured, you're going to force money out of the asset bubble into the economy. And keep in mind that the logic of universal basic income is identical to the logic of not giving certain regressive taxes to the government in the first place. It's exactly the same as not paying FICA sales tax and indeed income tax and doing wealth tax. instead. So that's just an example of a trade. You give them something, you can get something. Yeah, so I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about the benefits of a forward party for that reason. But my fundamental issue, and I've said this to Andrew, is that if you don't make the basic requirement of being part of the forward party, not taking corporate money, I don't see how that helps us get rid of the corporate duopoly. So I'm I'm bored with the idea of having some identity of interest with libertarians and potentially running as one giant third party under the banner of forward or somewhere else. But I don't understand how a party can have any credibility when people are complaining about the courtocracy, you know, the, the plutocracy. Uh, if the libertarians, the reason they're able to be so powerful and get on all the ballots is because they do take the corporate money and they use it, you know, for those ends. And I believe well, that we can fundraise. Got as right. Well as you did without taking corporate right. And I believe that's what I was saying. So I believe that we can fundraise and do that without that. But you got to convince the libertarians and I'm not joining ranks with any party. I'm not, I'm not going to link arms with any party that would have candidates who well, are taking corporate money. Then you don't, then you don't have to go and call yourself a libertarian party and you do it the other way. What you do is you steal their voters. You talk to that 10 point gap who are libertarian. That's the, there are two groups of swing voters. One of them, I'll just get out of the way because it's not the one to whom we're really speaking. And this might have a demographic bias because I'm in Iowa, mm-hmm. but they're, they're, White women between 30, let's just say white women over the age of 30, 
And the proof that they're swing voters is that's who it's worth targeting for fear mongering when you're saying that a caravan of drug dealing rapists is coming toward the southern border or the public schools are trying to turn your kids gay or that Joe Biden's energy comments or why their gas is going up. Like all these things are ridiculous, but they believe it. <laughs> Trigger warning, sexism incoming. You know, they, they vote with their gut. They're, they're not very heady. They uh, are very prone to this sort of fear-driven narrative. But there's another group of swing voters. And that's sort of libertarian adjacent men, uh, usually. But we, we, uh, we, I'll say we, we're not all stuck in 2012. In 2012, I did not know what, I'd never heard the word neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of modern monetary theory. Mm -hmm. you know, but these people are out there. And now we, you and I have a shit ton of common ground. I want a wealth tax. I want Medicare for all. I want to end the drug war. I mean, just watching your thing with the Green Party earlier today, the long list of things on which libertarians agree is like mm -hmm. uh, no drug war, uh, streamline immigration over the borders, uh, pro-choice. Like there's a, there's a lot of common ground there. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I agree. And I think... The question will be, you know, I, I think that the success of the forward will depend on whether or not, like, I'm sorry, there's certain non-negotiables. I don't think that, like, the literal complaint here is that the two-party system is bought. That's the, that's the core, that's the core complaint. You know, that's what motivated people to go for Trump. He was independent. He was a billionaire. He didn't need to be bought. He was going to drain the swamp. That was what motivated people to go for, um, Bernie. And I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but I don't see how you get around that. And I completely agree, obviously, with courting all kinds of voters with this broad populist message. It's what Bernie was trying to do, and he was successful in doing so. He was the number one candidate with independent voters. So, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Jonathan. I appreciate you calling in. Okay, thank you. Uh, Rika, how are you doing? Oh, I caught... I caught you off guard. <laughs> I hopped to the back. Rika, if you're not ready, um, get back in line and I'll, I'll try you again. Um, Jess, what's on your mind? Jess, can you unmute yourself? I try for a little gender parody and this is what I get. <laughs> Jess, okay, Jess, if you are, uh, get back in line, if this isn't a good moment, I will come for you as well. Amanda, what's on your mind? Hey, Bree, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Um, I really enjoyed that interview. It was, um, it, it lifted me to my spirits about what might be possible one of the things that Matthew Ho said that I thought was kind of amazing was he said the status quo is deadly. Mm. Mm -hmm. It yeah. just was because it just hits so hard without being specific, you know? And, yeah, um, for sure. So when I was in high school, Duran Duran was like a thing, right? And all my girlfriends mm -hmm. had a favorite member of Duran Duran. Either you liked Simon or you liked, this is, this is analogous to, you know, New Kids on the Block or BT, whatever, the Spice Girls. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you pick the one that you identify with, right? In this country of 350-some million people, 
we get two flavors, left and right. And it's not even clear mm -hmm. to people who are not total wonks and paying attention all the time which policies are left and which ones are right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a giant mishmash and everybody can tell the system's broken. So mm. I think we can't refer to it as a third party because that just, there's so many other possibilities. I liked what Jill Stein said about, about um, elect left, but I think it, you could do something like a voters union but it would have to be decentralized because every time you go in a direction where you where you have something that you can that the Democrats or the Republicans can put a target on it and mm. kill it. Right. But if it's decentralized and every state is unique in the way that they do their I mean, it's a thing because of the Constitution, although the, there's um, I don't know if you heard about the the Moore versus Harper the independent state legislatures case no. with the Supreme mm -hmm. Court. So I was just listening to um, a podcast um, about it, and I'm not a lawyer, so but it, it it's about that the state legislature, the strict reading of the Constitution is that state legislatures have the sole authority to appoint electors for president. So they can totally ignore the public's will of the popular vote. Mm -hmm. Apparently that's something that's coming up. But if you have, if mm. you get something that's kind of decentralized, but has some help building the original structure of it, mm. you could just, you know, you could get information out in the primaries so you can get somebody that's not the establishment, right? Which is part of the problem, because now half the primaries are already over. So you get who you get. Yeah, so are you talking about people, you're saying that running as a Green Party candidate or a third party outsider candidate presents too much of a target for Dems and that you do think that people should run on a Democratic Party line, but have some other way to identify themselves as, you know, political outsider or something else? Right, like like I live in California and, and there I did get that um, the flyer that Jill Stein talked about that recommended certain left candidates for different local offices. And that kind of thing is really helpful, but it, it, it takes some people who are ready to do it, right? And, and it's, it's um, staying decentralized, but building coalitions might help. But I'm, I'm just gonna, one of the things so I've been listening so much to the to your podcast mm -hmm. that I forgot that at the very <laughs> beginning of the so so I don't think that forming a party, whether you want to call it a third party or an alternative, it, just one party is 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 just reminds me of Audrey Lord's quote. You know, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. We have to mm -hmm. do it from outside, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, she also said revolution is not a one-time event. You must have community to have liberation. They, mm. This is why places like Colin are so fantastic. Mm. I just want to drop one other radical idea. Okay. Instead of trying to control campaign finance, 
What if we controlled the time that campaign money could be collected and or spent into the economy? Mm. Like you say, only 180 days before. So like no, no campaign funds in between these periods. And you limit the amount of energy that goes into these campaigns. And you, you can get back to... Um, something with then then you might be able to to attach on to get some campaign finance reform once you limit the amount of time that you can actually collect and spend that money yeah i mean i think you know other countries have much more limited campaign periods um and i think that's good the problem is you know in the united states that's kind of just that's all campaign finance reform i mean that they can't they can't manage that either. <laughs> you know, they, they can't manage yeah. to get that either. So I, I think it's great, but I don't know that it's more easy to achieve that than other kinds of campaign finance reforms. You know, the, the problem is we have two parties that neither of which wants it. Um, you know, Barack Obama and John McCain were supposed to be famously aligned on campaign finance reform. And as soon as Obama won the primary, and it became clear how advantageous, you know, what a great fundraiser he was. He reneged in a heartbeat and John McCain was like literally standing on the stage with his arms akimbo, like, whoop, <laughs> what just happened? Um, so yeah, no, but I, I agree. And I think that your Audrey Lord quotes are important, especially the point about community and the sustained nature of it, which again was why Barack Obama was so disappointed in shutting down his um, organization. But, you know, I, I, I would a, like a to. Vote, what do you think about mm-hmm. the idea of something like a voters union? I guess well, tell me more about that. I don't know like, that I like. So so I guess you could say the League of Women Voters would be kind of analogous, but it would be a, 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 not a political party, but an organization that would help vet candidates regardless of party whether they're local or running running for federal office. But I guess I guess now that I'm thinking about it, probably the League of Women Voters fits that slot. It just doesn't seem like they're they've been very effective or active recently. Maybe that's just me. Now, all these orgs, that's the problem. I mean, was it was it Matthew Ho who was talking or was it Jill Stein talking about how like the Democrat the debates used to be run by whatever women's group and was it with the League of Women's Vote? Yeah. Yeah. And these things used to operate outside of the system. It just isn't that anymore. And moreover, any group that would hope to like fill in the void is so captured. I mean, I was walking around today and there was some, uh, NARAL folks taking signatures and whatnot. And, you know, no shade to the kids who are out there trying to do their best and advocate for abortion rights. But I walked past them and I thought to myself, like, you shouldn't have endorsed Hillary. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. It's it's frustrating to know that all of these groups are being run by like the worst people. I shouldn't say that. Not the worst. But you know what I mean? People who don't have the same goals, who ultimately are still deeply trustful of the Democratic Party, even in a moment like this. And so it, there's not even a, an established group to whom I would defer that I would want to run any of this stuff. Look what WFP did to Bernie in the last round. You know what I mean? Well, maybe it's the longevity of the of everything, whether it's NGOs or 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 people in office. The, the it, it's all that same generation that just hasn't gotten out of the way, so the next generation can come through and 
bring in new ideas. You know, it's all well and good to have uh, um, AOC and some of the other younger folks, but the, the people that really wield all the power are, are people, I'm 52, and it's people that are my older than my parents are the people that are still in charge. Yeah. Nothing changes because it's the, still the same generation that's in charge. Retire, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a part of me thinks that that is exactly why they they won't. They kind of recognize, you know, that they're the the bench that comes after them does not. You know, it's pretty radically different in terms of their politics. I saw there was an article. I haven't clicked on it, but I've been seeing it in the Twitter feed as we've been on this call about how young voters are so unhappy with leadership, which is much, much older. And a part of me thinks that the reason that these Pelosi's and Schumer's and uh, the octogenarians that are running their country are holding on is exactly because they know, I'm not saying it's going to be some wonderful radical shift that millennials are going to herald. There's plenty of us that are exactly like Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> but especially in the generation behind me, you know, they're all, all right. they're all on, they're, they're, they're real ones. Like every single one of them is like capitalist, not for me, even if it's in a superficial TikTok-y sort of way, like they have a much shorter road to travel to getting to the place that it took me to age 30, 31 to get to, you know? Right. Well, maybe part of it is we need to give them a place to land. They don't have very good yes. imaginations. So, so maybe <laughs> they can't imagine what they're going to do if they're not in power. Maybe we give them the, what they can do. I mean, it's not just the Clintons that have foundations. There's a lot of things that these people could be doing to mentor the next generation of leaders. And if they even so wanted to inculcate them with all of their philosophies, they could be doing that. Nobody's doing that. They're just staying in office, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, th I do think it has to be about revolutionary organizations. It's not going to be... God bless them, parent, Planned Parenthood or NARAL or WFP or probably even DSA. Maybe, maybe, the, I mean, maybe I shouldn't sell DSA short, but it's got to be something. And it's also got to be some stuff on the local level. I was thinking about that t this today also when I was doing my radar on religion. And I simultaneously am very frustrated by this kind of open disrespect for the establishment clause that's going on with Lauren Bo Boebert and some of these loons. Mm. But also, you know, missing the sense of community that so many people used to get from those kinds of institutions. And, you know, the, you know, I've said this a lot that I do feel like, you know, there's a deficit. People are clinging around for something. Some of this culture war stuff, it, it's a, it's a symptom of isolation. I think, you know, you can, it's almost like a social activity to get together and hate on something together or to roll your eyes at the same dumb dums together, whoever you think the dumb dums are, whether it's the left or the right. And there has to be a substitute for that. There has to be something that feels better. And I, and I will say, when people say they like bipartisanship, they like when people work together, I don't think it's really about liking bipartisanship. I think there's a notable, noticeable shift in the room if you say something like, you know, we, we can get through this if we work together, if we stand together. Sometimes I feel like I'm doing platitudes when I say stuff like that. But I genu genuinely am comforted by the idea. And I, I get the feeling from others that they like hearing that too. And I don't know when I hear conservatives say stuff about how like, oh, I just like the hill or whatever, because it's two people who can talk without screaming. And I, I'm tired of all the divisiveness and 
stuff like that. I used to kind of roll my eyes at it. Like, oh, you just want the people who are being having their rights stripped away in these horrible ways to be docile and quiet about it and have a polite conversation when there's something polite about it. Sometimes I still feel that way. But I also do think there's something sincere there uh, that gives people hope and lends credibility when you see folks willing to have a certain, you know, treat each other with a certain degree of humanity. And that's frankly why I, I didn't love how that young professor um, in the back and forth with Howley, I didn't get into the whole whole thing. I watched the clip like everyone else. And I don't know what kind of horrible things he might have said to her before the part where we tuned in. And maybe she had a good cause to be kind of irritated. But that kind of initially starting the clip with the, the snark and the energy, like she's not wrong, obviously. But you have to think about how you're being perceived. And are you willing, you know, I, I'm not sitting here saying anyone should feel respectful toward Josh Howley or that he deserves all of that respect and deference. But you win. Your argument wins more if you are able to demonstrate humanity even as you criticize people and disagree with them. And that's a very difficult, it's a difficult line to toe because I know a lot of people are looking for catharsis. They're looking for someone to shout Josh Howley down. And I respect that as well, but there's trade-offs to that, you know? in terms of your ability to communicate and win people over. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate how you transcend left and right and talk to people and meet them where they are. It, it, it's a good example, and I wish more people would stop bashing people they disagree with and start just at least being quiet if you can't, you know, if you can't talk with them, at least don't be yelling at them, Right. But, mm-hmm. or insulting them behind their backs it doesn't it doesn't help anyone just deepens the divide yeah yeah anyway yeah. on well, that look, happy so- no- on that happy note <laughs> <laughs> no look I, I really appreciate you calling in and amanda you gave me some things to think about drop a comment in the in the chat or in the comment section afterward if you have any recommendations for where to look to look into um voters unions or any of these kind of alternative mechanisms. Cause I think, I think your instincts are sure. right there. Sure. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, I will keep Have the faith. You too. Thank you. You too. <laughs> All right. Let me cruise back here. Cause there were a couple people who were up and then got cut off and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Rika. You're up Rika. What's on your mind? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just like texting my boo and I was like, oh, shit, shit, shit. Um, okay, anyway, so uh, long time no talk. No, I I um, just been living for these podcasts, these Hill episodes. Um, I, yeah, just, it's been amazing. Um, and I definitely got that big, big green energy right now. So, um, oh, that yeah, would have been a good I, episode title. Yes, it would have. have. Maybe close out in the call on that one. But um, I, I just, I love every time you mention that you voted for Jill Stein in 2016. I'm like fist pumping over here, just like Mm -hmm. absolutely unapologetic. I loved hearing her talk again because I think, you know, I know that there was like a lot of, I'm, I'm sure it was like hit pieces around her whole vaccine crap, and I don't believe Mm -hmm. any of it. But when she just she is like Bernie to me when she speaks. It's so clear. Like everything is just so clear. Mm-hmm. And she just knows who, how to frame who the enemy is and what we got to do to get, you know, to get at them. Um, 
And I also love when her and Sherry Honkla were running, I think it was like in 20, like when Obama was running for the second term, I think that's what it was. Mm. Um, They all got arrested trying to get into the debates, Mm. you know? And I'm just like, that's a bad bitch right there. Yeah. Like, (laughs) come on. Like that's, and that's what I want. Like I, um, I want, I want candidates. Like I'm, I'm obviously more of those, one of those uh, organizers that is more about like shut the shit down, mm-hmm. um, you know, focus and energy. But I, to the extent that we have to indulge in our electoral system, I would, I just want candidates that are badass like that, you know, like I want someone who stuck their neck out, who, yeah. who's like, yeah, put it a little bit on the line. So I, yeah, I just like, and I feel like the green party when I see some of their candidates, I don't know about this Howie Hawkins person. I know people be hating on him, but I don't know too much about him. <laughs> but I really appreciate that, like, they got Rosa Clemente, right? Mm. They got uh, Ajamu, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, I'm like, yes, that mm-hmm. that's what I want. So I'm I'm here for it. Green 2024, baby, let's go. Yeah, I, I do. I didn't mean to, like, come down hard on, um, oh, was it Daryl? Uh, you know, or was maybe it wasn't Daryl, but whoever it was that was kind of you know skeptical of the quality of Green Party candidates and all of that. Look, I'm here for pointed criticisms. Nobody's perfect. All of that, but when the flaws of these establishment candidates are so huge and they don't huge. even have any values, <laughs> it's like right. I get it. Like sometimes I wish you know a candidate would present a little more professionally or not be made so easily a oh joke of and stuff like that. Like I get those criticisms. But, like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that somebody seeming a little folksy and hippy-dippy is the same as someone being, like, a war criminal. <laughs> you know Ain't what I mean? A fuck, man. Ain't <laughs> a fuck, man. Also, like, I will take hippy-dippy over this, like, mayo pee any fucking day of right. the week, girl. Like, come on. <laughs> come on. Give me some stones. I will take that over this. I'm um, Chaston and his little two, 2.5 children. But I'm, like, I am over it. Anyway, I just, I love the, the episode. I also, um, shout out to, I think, the conversations you've also been having on the Hill as you've been, I feel like you, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm curious. It seems like you've made an intentional turn in kind of how you handle some of the things that irritate you that come out of your co-host mouth. <laughs> and it seems like, cause, cause it's clear, it's clear when, when they, when they're saying some stuff, you know, but I feel like how you're handling it, you like you're, it feels like you're pausing a little bit more and like being like, let me just, let me just, and then collect, yeah, you know, it's hard. Like at first it does feel like you want to react because you feel mm-hmm. like the, every second that the words are coming out, it's like poison and you gotta, <laughs> you gotta like stem the flow of gas to the room before there's consequences for everybody or whatever. But you know, the audience sees you as filibustering if you do that and they see you as being right. afraid of the other person's point of view. And I, you know, it's hard, it's hard. It's like, I'm just learning. I, I think that there is a, a way that you can give someone enough rope to kind of do themselves in um, and not be afraid of them talking, just kind of be a little confident that you have responses for whatever they're going to say and let it out. And also I'm working on admitting that sometimes I don't know, you know, it's a topic I don't know. I don't know. I, I keep going back to the back and forth I had with Robbie about the baby formula crisis. We're not, like at, when it came up, I had no sense of what had caused it. And he did a yeah. radar and I was like, mm, that doesn't sound quite right to me. And then I did some research and I did a radar. And I think we're both better off for having taken a beat 
you know, mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. I, oftentimes I'm really pushing for more experts. Like, I frankly don't think yes. Robbie and I should have a conversation about inflation, just the two of us. Like, we, we, no. we, we've both said everything that we know about inflation. And yeah. now it's a battle. It should be a battle of the experts, you know, and I feel like a lot of subjects are that way. I wish yeah, yeah. we had had like a really good, we did a segment today about, um, uh, AMLO's visit with, uh, Biden. And I wished we had had someone with like more foreign policy chops to talk about it. Right. So totally. I, I, you know, I, I'm hope we're, we're all having active discussions about what our panels of guests should be like and how to get some like new guests in the, in the circuit. And I have feelings about that because I don't know that there's been a really strong left advocate for certain kinds of guests for a while, mm-hmm. um, given that the left's chair has been switching around so much. And I think when you're in there temporarily, you don't feel as much agency in, in saying, hey, you should have this person on. Um, but, yeah. But who's that Batia person that was there? I think that's how you say her name. Am I saying it correctly? Yeah, did Batia you? Unger Sargan. I, you know, I interviewed yes. her on an episode of Bad Faith at one point. That's right. You did. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep, 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 yep. She is the opinion editor at Newsweek. Uh, and she wrote this book called Bad News about the history of the publishing industry. And, you know, she self-describes as a leftist. But as we talked yeah, about on the yeah, show, okay, okay. you know, I feel <laughs> like I disagree with her on some things. She's yeah. very against. She says that student debt cancellation is a regressive policy. Yeah, I mean, she, she frames a lot of stuff um, as anti-worker and I, I, it has what I feel. And this isn't me talking shit or anything. We, we had this discussion on the podcast. Yeah. I feel like she engages in what I perceive to be a kind of full valorization of this kind of like idea of a working class person absolutely as as absolutely. an excuse to not offer them mobility to live whatever kind of life they want to live and absolutely. she perceived me as saying oh it's wrong or bad to be working class and you're just trying to get people to not be janitors or whatever and i'm like well no if no. someone sincerely wants to be a janitor god bless but i am saying that yeah. i'm not going to paternalize people and pretend that everybody's like a happy little surf just because that's convenient for me in an economic system that benefits me, we, you know, people shouldn't make job choices based on what they want to do, not because they can't afford to go to college or because they can't afford a different kind of opportunity. And so, yeah, so go ahead. No, no, it, it, the way she has like, that seems anti-worker to me is like the same way that people go. That seems a little white supremacist of you. I'm like, L- you're, you're reaching here, honey. You're reaching, you're reaching. But I, I was just curious. I, I anyway, but I, what it, the other thing I wanted to comment and give you kudos for is like I feel like I see you reaching out to the Hill audience and being like, "How about some of that revolutionary energy, folks?" Like I, mm-hmm. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I see you doing it, and I am here for it, and I love the way you're doing it. I am I am picking up what you're putting down. Just noted, just noted. <laughs> I it makes my heart sing. I'm like, yes, yes, that Sri Lanka energy. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Let me tell you, I was like, I hope they don't cancel me over this. Like, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not saying like fully do a Sri Lanka. I'm just showing you the clip. Okay. Here's a clip. Look, it's a clip. This is news. It happens. Uh, and, uh, it happens. So that's how some countries are doing it. 
Yes. <laughs> let me let me find my crew and go swimming in the White House. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. No, I appreciate you, Bree, and thanks for it's. Um, I feel like I've I've just been totally like consumed with obvious like real like not parasocial relationship shit so um <laughs> i've been away and i i just adore you and adore this podcast and um keep up the amazing work appreciate you oh look the feeling is mutual thank you so much you know i saw i see you in the queue i'm i'm calling on you it has been a while since we chatted and i really appreciate that you're listening i i, I think i think of you and a lot of you callers when I'm on the hill and feeling not validated by the oh, audience really? in the comment really? section, I'm like, there's somebody, somebody out there loves me. <laughs> somebody yeah. likes me. Somebody cares about me. <laughs> Rika is in your corner saying, go girl, go. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Do this. Oh, well, look, I appreciate you. I think that's a great note to leave on. We've been up here for two hours. Like I said, I'm going to try to squeeze in an extra call in over the weekend to make up for the absence last week when I was traveling. But you know, thank all of you for being you, for participating, for giving me such good ideas and having such thoughtful conversations that really challenge me. And um, let's go out on green from The Wiz. And I will see you, if not this weekend, then the beginning of next week. Keep the faith. Show that your stuff's lame. If you're not seen green, you better be wearing shade.